Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. And welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast, podcast, podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham. I am your host. As always, I love doing this. I hope you don't mind hearing my voice on here because I really, really enjoy this. Like this is one of my favorite things I do for Leading Saints is the podcast. Now you may ask, wait a minute, isn't this just a podcast? You mean there's more to Leading Saints? Yes, absolutely. Because Leading Saints isn't just a podcast. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we can't accomplish all that with just a podcast. We need more. So we have a website, leadingsaints.org. We've got, uh, obviously, the podcast you're listening here. I invite you, if you're new to Leading Saints, jump on into the into the archives. You, you can actually go on the homepage of leadingsaints.org, scroll down a little bit. It's going to show you the top the top six most downloaded episodes of Leading Saints. So if you start anywhere, of course, this episode you're listening to, a good place to start. But after this, go to that page and listen to those episodes, and uh, you'll thank me later. Now, in this episode, we talk with uh, somebody you're probably familiar with, Jared Halverson. I've been hearing Jared's name for a couple of years now. Actually, people, I've gotten several emails from people, hey, you've got to interview this guy that's a institute teacher, and he's got a great perspective, knowledge, and uh, I finally tracked him down, and we did it. I went down to uh, the University of Utah, their institute building down there, and uh, down memory lane for me since I attended the institute in that building while I was in uh, college. And uh, I sat down and did a long, long interview with Jared Halverson. You can probably tell by the length of this episode. And Richie Stedman over at the Culture Hall, he always gives me bad time. Richie, hang with me here. I know it's longer than an hour, but it's worth it. But here's the thing. There's so many angles, so many concepts to discuss with Jared, and I'm sure we'll have him on future episodes of the podcast, but I just wanted to cover it all. And so we we jump around to different topics, but it was insightful. I learned a lot, and uh, we encourage you to check out his YouTube channel, uh, Unshaken, which he put some great Come Follow Me content out there, really in-depth stuff, and it might be your flavor of uh, Come Follow Me. So here is my interview with Jared Halverson. All right, today I find myself in Salt Lake City, Utah, at the University of Utah Institute building with Jared Halverson. How are you, Jared? Doing great. I thanks. guess your your brother Halverson around these parts, right? Bro Hal is what they Bro. often call me. A little easier. <laughs> nice, nice. And uh, how long have you been teaching here? This is my. I'm finishing my sixth year at the nice. University of Utah. It's been wow. great. And uh, any, I mean, I always talk with the CES guys, and it's. In my mind, is things, don't you all just want to get to BYU religion department and, and teach there? I mean, I don't know. Is there like positives and 
and negatives, pros and cons as far as teaching in an institute rather than, or in a religious uh, department at BYU? Definitely pros and cons. And I've loved where I am. And I love the, what is being done down in Provo as well. When I was first asked by the church to leave Tennessee and come back to Utah, I had I'd spent time at BYU before and wondered if they were going to send me to Utah County. And when they said University of Utah, my wife must have felt that I was a little hesitant about coming to, to the U. And she said, honey, you study intellectual anti-Mormonism. You get to go to the epicenter. You're living the dream. And, and she was right about that. It's been, I've often felt that Provo is playing a home game and uh, Salt Lake is playing an away game yeah. when it comes to maintaining faith in the face of secularism and, and doubt. And it's been a perfect fit. I've really yeah. loved it here. So, so what does that actually, how does that manifest itself? I mean, as far as like being in the belly of the beast here, like the anti-Mormonism or whatever. I'm, I mean, I'm sure you don't get like protesters marching through the halls or anything, no. but, but what does that look like? But it is interesting to talk to students and this sense that when they are on campus, there are times where raising their hand and sharing what they really feel about an issue would not be welcome. Hmm. Uh, there's a certain sense, well, I'll put it this way. I've done a lot of things over on campus at the invitation of various professors to come, for example, and teach in the communications department principles of interfaith dialogue, cross-cultural communication is kind of a thing. And I've been invited several times by the College of Social Work to come and explain, you know, the restored gospel from a sociological perspective and trying to help people, you know, if they're going to be social workers here in Utah, how do you navigate uh, okay. the, the LDS uh, questions and issues and so on? And I remember one a professor said, yeah, can come and explain uh, your church's view on traditional marriage. And I said, oh, I'd be happy to. And then he said, he must have thought I was a little too eager or naive. And he said, you will be in the minority, just so you know. <laughs> and I laughed. I, I figured. I yeah. figured. I'm used Bring to that. It on, That's right? all right. You know, I lived in the South. I grew up in LA. I'm used to being a minority. Uh -huh. And uh, it was a great experience. And I am very, I feel more at home, honestly, when I'm a religious minority. It keeps me on my toes and forces me to articulate beliefs and listen to myself uh, not just in terms of what I'm saying, but what are they hearing? Yeah. And try to be bilingual to the point that they'll be comfortable with the perspective that I share and not feel attacked by it or ostracized by it. Yeah. And, you know, being a, a Utah boy myself and being, you know, born and raised here, I really don't understand the dynamic of being a religious minority mm -hmm. other than the two years in Sacramento when I'd walk through a Walmart and people would be like, those guys are dressed different and they're different than <laughs> yeah. me, right? But help us, and this maybe go down a path that I was planning to with just this, just being a religious minority and really responding to questions and tough questions. And you've been in that scenario a lot as, yeah. as far as asking or having tough questions thrown your way and having to respond with them with no preparation. Right? Yeah. So any advice, if there is a leader, may I can think of maybe a, a bishop who is invited out to another church to answer some questions or, and I don't know if these things happen, you would probably yeah. know better than I would, but what guidance would you give to leaders that find themselves in front of tough questions? My first piece of advice would be not to fear them. If the Lord himself is always counseling us to ask and seek and knock, then I hope we can be equally open to other people and their questions. Honestly, the fact that they're even asking a question shows a level of interest or at least curiosity, which brings with it some level of respect. And it can be scary, but when you know that, I think when you come with conviction, yeah, then it helps bring some courage. Yeah, And I mean, my first experiences were in high school and I, I Surrounded by friends of other faiths, it's fun to, to actually reflect. I've had some interesting conversations, uh, thanks to some social media opportunities, to reconnect with old high school friends mm. of other faiths and realize that we had such a diverse circle of friends, but it, and also a very devout circle of friends, strong Catholics and strong evangelicals. And 
uh, a Hindu and a Jew and, and and just Muslim friends. I mean, it was amazing to grow up in Los Angeles County and just have that level of diversity with people who v- felt very strongly about things that we didn't hold in common, mm-hmm. but we loved each other and we got along really well. And I mean, one of my good friends uh, from high school would come to me every Monday. Uh, he was an evangelical, actually teaches at Fuller Theological Seminary now. Uh, oh, wow. we, we've had yeah. kind of parallel lives. I served a Spanish-speaking mission for my church. He served a Spanish-speaking mission for his. Interesting. And, and very open. We knew each other well. And on Sundays, he would often get fed anti-Mormonism at church, but had the courage to come to me on Mondays after English class usually, usually and say, okay, this is what we learned about you guys yesterday. Uh, <laughs> wow. what, what do you what do you think of this? And and that was my first really exposure to anti-Mormonism, but it came from a friend who was genuinely and sincerely interested in knowing, is this true or not? Mm-hmm. And it gave me the opportunity to clarify some things and it kind of forced me into out of my bubble and like, wow, people really are saying these things about us. But also doing interfaith work, uh, there was a an interfaith Thanksgiving program at the local Catholic church that they asked me to come and represent our church as, you know, I was like a junior or senior in high school and that was kind of thrown into the deep end, but, mm-hmm. but a good experience. And then in the mission, in the mission field, you really get thrown questions constantly. Yeah. And I think there more than ever, I gained a testimony of something that I had really doubted before my mission. I mean, of all the things that God promises his servants, this was the one I didn't have any faith in before my mission and all the faith in the world in afterwards, which is when he says, open your mouth and it shall be filled. Uh-huh. And only occasionally does it get filled with your foot. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, it's- <laughs> And you speak for yourself. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but, but for the most part, I found, well, in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is one of those places where he says, just open your mouth and be filled. He says, take no thought beforehand what you shall say, hmm. but open your mouth and it will be given you in the very moment that portion that shall be meted to every man. And it's one thing to rest assured in that, but if you don't read the beginning of the verse- that says treasure up continually the words of life, then we think, oh, great, I can just step in unprepared and I'm good to go. No, it's, you don't have to have everything pre-planned and written out in advance, but treasure up continually the words of life. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, if the spirits, if one of the Spirit's jobs, according to the book of John, is to bring all things to our remembrance, if we've put something in there at one point, through our study, through our pondering, through our experience, then we get to a point where a question is asked, even if it's the first time we've ever considered it. I'm amazed at the Spirit's ability to bring things back from the, the deep recesses of memory and dust them off and let you see, you see how this fits now? And there's times, I guess if I were to talk, talking to a priesthood leader about this, if it's a conversation with a ward member or a stake member, for example, a ministering family, a friend, if you have a relationship, you have the luxury of second chances and third chances Mm -hmm. and and additional Mm -hmm. opportunities to speak. And I remember as a missionary, when someone would throw a question in my face that I had no idea about, it felt so good to let them know, you know, that is an amazing question that Mm -hmm. I've never considered. But you know what? We're supposed to study our scriptures for an hour every morning. And thank you for giving me material to study tomorrow. Hmm. It's like, I'm going to spend tomorrow morning, that hour, just thinking about your question and searching and studying. And it was interesting from their perspective to think, wow, you're going to spend an hour outside of my presence on my behalf? Yeah. And I think from a priesthood leader or a Relief Society presidency or a ministering family, just to say, that's a fascinating question. I have no idea. But you've given me some amazing food for thought. And I'll tell you what, I want to do some homework on it. 
I encourage you to do some homework on it too. And then let's get back together and talk. Yeah. And that's often what I'll do as I, as I speak with students, as I've been around, you know, again, as missionary, whatever, the harder part is when you know it's a one and done. Yeah. When this is my, so if you're speaking to another congregation, uh, when I was in Tennessee, I was there during the Mitt Romney campaign and everybody wanted to know about Mormonism at the time. And I was a student at, at, at the Divinity School at Vanderbilt. And so they like, wait, there's a, a Mormon guy. There's an LDS <laughs> member at the Divinity <laughs> School. They didn't care at all that I was, you know, directing the Nashville Institute for the church. They yeah. just thought, oh, this is a guy that's, you know, he's one of us. He's, <laughs> he's at Vanderbilt. So, but to be invited by congregation after congregation and just have a one on a one and done, explain your church to us. And I spent maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes at the beginning just to lay out some of the groundwork, but then just opened it to Q and A. Yeah. And I think sometimes you'll get confronted with a question the first time that you have no idea and you do your best and you follow the spirit's promptings. And, and sometimes you, you find yourself learning from what you say. And other times you find yourself wishing you knew better. <laughs> and, but I've, I'm amazed that if you'll open yourself to those kinds of opportunities, you'll typically have multiple experiences with it. And the second time, I'm amazed at how often it's the same question. And I've heard this before. And I didn't do a very good job answering it the first time. But I can do a better job of answering it now. Yeah. Because uh, I've had some time to think and study. So unfortunately, it may not have helped that first group, but it helps the second. Uh, and again, if I think if you're willing to put yourself out there and be open to people's questions, it opens yourself to an incredible learning opportunity. Yeah. So it sounds like even from a young age, you've been put in these scenarios where you've been able to practice this muscle of mm. of answering questions and defending your faith to some extent. If you were to go back in time and talk with Elder Halverson, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because especially on a mission is sort of, you know, a missionary can be a little bombastic or yeah. confident or, hey, you know, <laughs> we, we've got it. Let me, I learned a few scriptures this morning, right? What would you say to your young self as far as answering questions that, that you know now that maybe you didn't understand then? I think the biggest piece of advice I would give myself is to calm down uh, yeah. and to trust that the real answers are going to come from the Holy Ghost to the person. And while I might be able to address the head with some things, with the in the absence of the heart, head questions and head answers don't don't really get resolved. When the Lord says in section eight of the Doctrine and Covenants that He speaks to the mind and the heart, that's His definition of the Spirit of Revelation. I think sometimes we get I don't know so defensive and so dogmatic that this is the answer and it's the only answer and I've got it and you don't, that it offends the spirit. I, I've been amazed studying the Book of Mormon this year uh, more in depth than ever to see how often the Lord chastises his people for the contentious way they are seeking truth. Hmm. And so the goal was spot on. that they, want, they were in pursuit of orthodoxy, mm -hmm. but they were doing it in a disputatious way. And so to think, wow, I know orthodoxy is a priority, but is unity even a higher one? And so to pursue orthodoxy in the spirit of unity and to trust, well, I'll put it this way. I, I was talking with a, a group of students here uh, maybe a year ago, and we were talking about this balance uh, that's required of understanding the other person to try to be clear with what we're teaching. And so we're, we're trying to be understood, but at the same time to be understanding towards the other person. And how do you balance that? I mean, Paul to the Ephesians talks about speaking the truth in love. And most of us are either good at one or good at the other, but it's hard to be good at both. 
you probably know of people that are really good at speaking the truth, mm -hmm. but they just bull right over people. Yeah. That's the orthodoxy at the expense of unity. And there's others that are really, really good at speaking in love, but kind of shy away from the truth because it might ruffle some feathers. Yeah. And so that's unity at the expense of orthodoxy. And, and how, do you, how do you balance the two? And we were talking about this with a group of students, and it was right at the end of class, and a student just said, well, which side should you err on? And I gave the dumbest answer ever. <laughs> the bell was about to ring, and I knew I just had to say something to be done. And I just, well, and I said, well, just don't err. And that was it. And, <laughs> Thanks, and, yeah, exactly, right? And then I remember driving home, and the spirit was like, you idiot. Don't err. You just did. Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> right, no, yeah. Easier said than done, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, just yeah. strike the perfect balance. No. And so I came back the next period, you know, the next class period, and I said to them, I apologized for having erred in telling them not to. And I said, you know, I think if you're going to err on any side, err in such a way that you have another chance to offer some course correction. Mm. So whichever side that is in any given circumstance, in any set of Joseph Smith called them contraries, uh, proving contraries. And in any set of them, err in such a way that you have another chance to do a little bit better next time. And so there'll be times where I, you'll speak a little too much in love. And afterwards, you'll feel, I didn't stand up for something I really feel strongly about. And I think because you came across so loving the first time, you'll have an opportunity to self-correct and come back and say, you know, I can't stop thinking about the conversation we had. And out of my love for you. I just didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want to offend you in any way. And I hope you know that even in this second conversation, that's still my goal. But I did feel like I, I fell short of a secondary expectation. And I just really want you to know how I feel. I hope you remember how I feel about you, but I need you to know how I feel about this principle too. Yeah. And I think often in these kinds of conversations, it's just constant course correction yeah. and trying to do a little bit better next time than we did the time before. And again, back to your earlier question, if I went back to my mission self, I would probably do a little bit more speaking in love yeah, and let the truth kind of follow that lead instead of trying to establish orthodoxy at the expense of unity that I could have felt with the person that I was teaching. Yeah. And, and you know, going back to, I mean, relationship really is paramount to even yeah. have these discussions. And so it really doesn't matter what you say or how you say it if you don't get another chance to to correct that. Exactly. Right? And so for those leaders or individuals who want to answer tough questions or or be in those situations, it's really a question of how can I establish a strong relationship here so Definitely. they'll give me a second chance exactly. or a third one. I mean, I kind of made it my, by the end of my mission, I'd started to figure things out and uh -huh. mellow somewhat and it's continued ever since. But I kind of made it my goal to never leave anyone with a bad taste in their mouth. Hmm. And even again, facing the the firing squad, so to speak, at uh, in other congregations in the South. I mean, this was Bible Belt and some strong. As soon as they knew I was open to anything, I remember one pastor saying to me before I got there, "We're a little nervous about your coming." And I'm like, "You have home court advantage. What are you worried about?" <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I'm nervous, but I have reason to. And he laughed and he said, "Well, we're worried about the rules of hospitality. You're coming into our congregation and." And I said, well, what, is that, what do you mean by hospitality? And he said, our members are afraid that they'll need to be nice to you, uh, which means that they won't be able to ask you the, rec the questions that are really on their mind. Not that they're going to be just jerks, right? Right, exactly. But, I, but I, I laughed and I said, well, I'm grateful that you're worried about that, but don't worry about my feelings. I don't have any. Uh, just yeah. You can ask anything you want. It's all on the table. And my skin is thick enough 
not to be hurt by whatever you ask. And there were some strong conversations and some hard questions and some angry people uh, from experiences that they'd had uh, in their, their past with church members or their perspective on church doctrine or whatever the case might be. But again, if I think there's power in refusing to be offended. Mm-hmm. And I've often shared with, with interfaith groups, as I kind of lay out the rules of how to do this, that the elephant becomes my analogy and that elephants have massive ears. And it's not just to hear, it's to let off body heat. Mm. And there's so much surface area that if you'll just open up those ears, the heat will evaporate. And I've seen that in conversations, whether it's interfaith or with an angry Latter-day Saint that is threatening to leave the church and is demanding answers about church history things or, or doctrinal issues or church policy and those kinds of things. Just listen. And it's amazing to have to be non-judgmental, non-confrontational, not feeling like you have to jump to the church's defense immediately. It's like, no, I just really want to hear where you're coming from. And I've sometimes said to students that are, that are wrestling with these things, if you just want to come and ask questions, even if you don't want an answer, if you want to just vent, if you need a good pair of shins to kick, I'm here for you. Let's just talk. And the more you open those ears, the more heat dissipates. And then back to the elephant, you've got sharp tusks. So be very careful. You can't swing your head around wildly or without thinking about it. And so, especially when you're the the religious majority, when you Mm -hmm. are the elephant in the room, you've got to be careful stomping around with your big feet and swinging your head with your sharp tusks. And so not to be on the offensive at any time. And then conversely, elephants also have very, very thick skin. And that's because other elephants have sharp tusks. And so I've learned that if I can be uh, as thick-skinned as possible, then I won't get offended. And if I can be really careful with my tusks, then I won't be offensive. Mm-hmm. And that has has helped me in a lot of conversations that could have gotten testy or gotten heated, Yeah. Uh, whether that's in a congregation of non-Latter-day Saints or in a one-on-one conversation in my office yeah. with, a, with a student or a member of the church that's struggling. Yeah, I, I love that, just the, you know, the approach of d- diffusing that Sometimes that negative energy comes by just being a sounding board or opening your ears and just listening. And I remember as a bishop telling people, you know, there's certain rooms in in this chapel that are very special and each room sort of has its own purpose. And and the bishop's office is the way I see it is you can say anything here. Beautiful. If you need to swear in this room, you can swear. <laughs> if you need to yell about how Joseph Smith, you didn't like Joseph Smith, you can do that and I'll listen to you, right? And it just gave people permission, especially when they would get, they'd feel so frustrated, whether it was about a you know, a faith crisis or, or just about a situation going on in life, they felt like, okay, I have a safe place here to really just let this emotion out. And now that it's out on the table, let's look at it and yeah, let's talk yeah. about it. Right? No, it's one funny by you one. say that, Kurt. That's very insightful. Just this morning, I had a Zoom call, an hour plus, uh, with a student that's been wrestling with church issues and was, you know, the way he said it was interesting. It's like, I, I'm scared to raise my children outside of the church, but I'm scared to raise them in the church too. Mm. Uh, and I just wonder where I'm coming from and what's happening with my testimony and my perspective on things. And I've got questions and so on. And, and it was interesting. He said he was talking with his wife and said, I don't know if, oh, he, he said, I, I wanted, I'm going to talk with Brother Halverson about this. And she said, wait, really? You're going to talk to a church person about your issues <laughs> with the church? Uh-huh. Uh, and there was almost this concern on her part of, I mean, they're going to squash the conversation before before it even achieves liftoff. Yeah. And it was such a, a reassurance to him to know that, like you just described the bishop's office, Yeah, to know that it's that level of openness 
and just I'm here with a listening ear and an empathetic heart and a compassionate soul and you matter to me right now. And so lay it all out. Yeah. And I think the more open we are to that, instead of just taking the first thing they say and jumping on it to try to fix the problem or resolve the issue, so often the first thing they mention isn't the real core of the problem anyway. And especially as they, it's almost like they're putting out feelers and seeing what they're going to do with whatever they say. Mm -hmm. And if we jump on it or squash it or just brush it under the rug or whatever, then we're never going to get to the real, the yeah. real issues. And I think the more we listen and the more they lay things out on the table, like you described, the more the spirit has something to work with and can help you discern, this is the thing you actually need to talk about. Of, yeah. of all the 20 things they laid out, yeah, here's the one, the place to go. Yeah. And I think about some, I've heard the, the idea that some people have, like, I, I'm really nervous of talking to my bishop about these concerns because what if I cause him to doubt? I mean, I don't want mm-hmm. that. I mean, but, and I would often assure people, like, there's really no thing I haven't heard. Like, I've heard it all. Like, whatever argument or issue, I, I've really heard it all. And you can say that's 10 times more than I can. And just saying, like, no, you can talk about anything. Like, let's hear it. Like, let's talk about it, you know? And, and if I don't know the answer, I'm sure we can find an answer, or at least have a direction to find some faith in, right? And so really diffusing and, get, and creating that safety of, of people opening up. So we're kind of talking about a, a few things here, but going back to this being in the, in the Bible Belt, uh, being in front of the congregations and asking you questions, do you feel like that the evangelical audience is the one maybe you have the most practice with uh, answering those questions? Probably just because they're so prevalent there. Uh-huh. But I spoke to, I mean, at Presbyterian congregations and Catholic con- congregations and yeah, disciples of Christ. I remember coming home one day and I said, I told my kids, I got invited by the Episcopalian church to come talk to them this week. And my kids were little and they said, who's the pickled aliens? I said, no, no, Episcopalian. Ne- never mind. Okay. Uh, so all kinds of different. And I just love faith, whatever it might be and belief that's there. And and so I try to go to other churches whenever I could. And I went and worshiped with the Baha'is one week and I worshiped with the, the, the Quakers another week and mm-hmm. go to Catholic mass. And Again, at a divinity school, you're friends with all these ministers in training, and so it was fun to go to with them to their churches uh-huh. if they were going to be preaching or so on. And I just, I think there's a beautiful, I think there's beauty everywhere, and God is so generous with His goodness and with His truth. We don't have a, a monopoly. We we do have a monopoly on a few things, mm-hmm. but not on many. Yeah. And to be open to that again, I think just we close ourselves off from powerful experiences with God when we close ourselves off from others of his children. Yeah. That holy envy concept, yeah. you know, and, and really over the last few years, I've been getting more and more of this holy envy as it relates to the evangelical church. I mean, the way that they can talk about grace and love. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes I, I come to our wards and congregations and I hear a lot of, well, yeah, that's good. Yeah. God loves you, but don't remember the checklist over here. All right. Remember <laughs> yeah. we're doing this thing. Like, I just want to sit in love for a minute. Will you, will you offer me that? You know, right. Well, that's another beautiful example of proving contracts, you know, mm. back to that quote from Joseph Smith of, of grace and works and, and where do they fit, right. you know, and, and a desire. I, I've had lots of, yeah, I, I've probably done this more with evangelical groups than anyone else and have some just great friends that are evangelical pastors and you know, from the South as well as here in Utah. And we do a lot of good interfaith work together. And I've often said, it feels like we're walking down the sidewalk. When I go on a walk with my wife, I'm constantly switching from her right side to her left side, depending on which is the clear and present danger. Mm. And what that means is if we're walking near the street, I always walk on the street side because I don't. I, I want her to be as far away from oncoming traffic as possible. Mm-hmm. I'm more expendable. Just ask my kids. <laughs> and uh, Life insurance is right. in place. Right? 
But if there's a dog in somebody's yard, then I switch because my wife is deathly afraid of dogs. And uh-huh. so I'd rather get, you know, eaten than, than, than she. And so to me, it's, it's a matter of, am I going to, we're both on the same sidewalk and we, we can walk hand in hand, but whichever side seems the scariest, I want my wife to be on the opposite side. And I think as we're trying to balance grace and works, for example, evangelicals understand the need to live a Christ-like life. Uh, they are cons- concerned about cheap grace as we would be, mm-hmm. or sloppy agape, they even call it. You know, just, oh, put it on Jesus' tab. I can live like hell and still go to heaven, that kind uh-huh. of an idea. Right. And that's a concern among evangelicals even. But their greater concern is that we ever feel pride in the presence of God or think that we have somehow earned our salvation. And it's just interesting that Latter-day Saints have that same fear, but it's almost like we're walking down the the sidewalk together, hand in hand, Latter-day Saints and evangelicals, but one of us is scared of dogs and the other of us is scared of cars. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like the Latter-day Saint is saying, I refuse to become complacent. I refuse to presume upon his grace, as Paul says, and an evangelical would say, and I refuse to ever hint towards works righteousness. I refuse to become prideful or self-sufficient. And again, the closer we come and the better we understand things, the more I think we see we're, we're doing this as similarly as you can imagine in, in many ways. Now, I've had some fascinating conversations. I invited an evangelical minister friend of mine to lunch when he was out visiting from Alabama. And I said, we need to study King Benjamin together. I really think he's an evangelical Nephite. I think you'll really love <laughs> King Benjamin. Huh? And we studied, and he's like, oh, yeah. I mean, amen. This, this is some great stuff. And <laughs> and I again, I think there's so much beautiful common ground. And if we're open to their perspectives, they're more open to ours. And it's just some great conversations can be had yeah. if we're open to them. So being around the, you know, the evangelicals so much and, and learning from them and, and associating with them, do you feel like, I mean, generally speaking, and it's more of this is more of a question related to culture than it is doctrine, I feel like, but is there more we can do to include grace in our uh, dialogue at church? As my evangelical friends would say, amen, hallelujah. Yeah. Y- yes, there is, right? <laughs> Honestly, I think a lot of this is historical. If you see the Protestant Reformation, Catholicism at the time, I mean, Christianity itself is trying to strike the balance between following God, becoming a true disciple of Jesus Christ, so that to the point that we are able to receive the grace that so fully he proffers us, as mm-hmm. we sing in the hymn. By the time Martin Luther came onto the scene, the Catholicism that he was exposed to had swung the pendulum so far towards works that he realized that there was no way that even as monkish a monk as he was could live at that level of mm-hmm. righteousness. And so when he found grace in his study of the book of Romans, it changed everything for him. And as is often the case, when, whenever a, a set of contraries, whenever a paradox is unbalanced, when we start moving away from the direction we're unbalanced in, we don't just correct, we tend to overcorrect. Hmm. Yeah. And so in Protestantism's case, it was a wonderful move towards grace away from a works righteousness that had become unbalanced, but it was an overcorrection to the point that Martin Luther didn't want to include the book of James in his German translation of the Bible. He, oh, thought, wow. he said, that's an epistle of straw because it brings up works again. And I can't, it's almost like PTSD. You almost get this sense from Luther where it's like, don't say the W word in my presence. Okay. <laughs> don't make me feel like I have to be perfect. 
I think often in, we we talk about toxic perfectionism in the church, and there's that sense. And so for Luther, it was freedom. Uh, no wonder Protestantism is so grace heavy, and almost to the point of being works light. Uh, I just had a, an experience, what, two weeks ago with about 100 evangelical college students that came to Utah, and we did like three hours of Q&A. And so many of their questions were about grace and works and almost trying to push me into a corner. It's like, but you think you have to do all these things to be saved. And, and I said, well, but is that, no, is that, are those the requirements of salvation or simply what salvation consists of? Mm-hmm. I don't, I try to serve my wife as much as I can, but it's not to pay her back for marrying me. It's not to convince her to, to keep putting up with me. It's what a loving relationship is. Uh, trust me, evangelical friends, our idea of works is, is so similar to yours. But what's interesting is if the Protestant Reformation grew out of Catholicism and overswung the pendulum in the direction of faith and grace, the restoration happened in a Protestant environment. Uh-huh. And if there was a sense that Protestantism had overswung towards grace within the church, there's almost a sense of, oh, we can't be too, you know, too far on that side. And I worry sometimes, have we overcorrected in the opposite direction, just like Protestant, the Reformation mm-hmm. did in, in the first direction? And I think, like we were saying about error in such a way that you can correct your, your errors, yeah. I think we're seeing that. When President Uchtdorf gave that beautiful talk about grace several years ago, I got a text from an evangelical pastor friend even before the conference was over, just saying, hallelujah, you guys are finally talking about grace. And I laughed and said, well, read the Book of Mormon. It's in there all over the place. Uh-huh. And I think the more immersed we become in our own restoration scripture, the more we will become disciples of the grace of Christ. Yeah, It's everywhere in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And I often find that we sort of want to stick our, put our stake in the ground, like where on the spectrum are we, mm-hmm. right? And when in reality, my personal faith development and progress is, I felt like it's this pendulum that is constantly swinging. Like some days I just need an Elder Holland, Elder yeah. Uchtdorf talk. <laughs> right. Other days I'm like, I want to dig into President Oaks yeah. and, and really yeah. see what he meant by that, exactly. right? And they're sort of on different stages of the spectrum. And just depending on maybe the pressures I'm in or, or whatever, sometimes I just need that full enveloping grace and love of God just to get me through this week. 100%. And other weeks I'm like, yeah. okay, I'm going to really like, this is exciting. I'm going well, well, to dig in. What you're saying is, is spot on. And that's to me, the power of this idea of proving contraries that mm-hmm. Joseph Smith talked about. Because if it's a contrary, if it's a paradox, then it's bidirectional. You can move left or right along this spectrum. So if you take, I mean, the one we're most familiar with in the church is probably justice and mercy. And right. you ask, well, which one was Jesus? And the answer is, well, yes, both. He's, I mean, his experience with a woman taken in adultery is such a perfect illustration of this, where he can be, neither do I condemn thee, there's his mercy talking, go and sin no more, there's his justice talking. And unfortunately, when we're addressing groups in the mass, it's really hard to, to find the proper balance. Because if you have people spread out across a spectrum and you want all of them to be standing in the middle, you can't say, everyone take a step to your left. That's good advice to the people that are too far to the right, but it's horrible advice to the people that are too far yeah. to the left. I remember the first time as a seminary teacher years ago, there was a student at the school that we, where I taught that had committed suicide. And the next day in seminary, I knew that was what was on all the students' mind. And I remember saying to them, there are two lessons I need to give about this topic. And one of them is for 
the group of you that has never contemplated suicide and uh, doesn't know anyone who has, has contemplated or attempted, it's a non-issue for you. And for this group, I need to talk about the sanctity of life and the importance of finding other solutions to challenge and so on. But there's a second group within this class that that would be the worst lesson for them. They need a lesson on we cannot judge and we don't know what was going on in the heart and mind of the person that was suffering. And there is hope and there is grace and that there is atonement even for this. And basically the idea is one group within this class needs the, the justice lesson and one group within this class needs the mercy lesson. And the hard part is you're all here together. Yeah. And so I'm going to try wow. to teach both lessons either simultaneously or back to back. You need to be able to self-prescribe and know which one of these two lessons is intended for you. I've sometimes joked that there are two types of people in the church, and each group has a favorite verse. One group's favorite verse is Matthew 5.48, be therefore perfect. And they take that one incredibly seriously, and they beat themselves up over that verse uh -huh. all the time. There's a second group whose favorite verse is Mosiah 4.27 that says, don't run faster than you have strength. And they love that verse. It's like, yeah. hey, it's okay. We're doing fine. And often the first group is found in the Relief Society, and the second group is found in the Elders Corp, you know, where there's this perfectionism on one side and a complacency on the other. And I wish that those two groups could switch verses now and then, right? <laughs> to jumpstart the group that's feeling apathetic and to reassure the group that is feeling inadequate. Yeah. And I think as that's why so much good happens in the bishop's office, as you said. So much good happens in a ministry interview. So much good happens in a ministry visit because it can be one-on-one. -on -one. And you can get a sense of where are you on the spectrum? And like you just said, if you're feeling too far on one side and I need a, a talk about grace to reassure me that I'm doing better than I think, then that's where I need to go. And conversely, if I'm feeling too complacent and like I'm doing fine, then I need something that's going to wake me up and, and teach a little justice to me. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I always go back to think, knowing that that relationship with my father in heaven will always disrupt me regardless of where I am on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get so involved in the checklist yeah. and he will do things to remind me, can you just know that I love you? Like, yeah. even if you didn't do any of that today, I still love you. Right. Yeah. And sometimes we walk away from conference thing like, oh, okay, I need to do better. Yeah. I need to go to the temple more. I need to, I need to reinvest my efforts in, in the in scripture study. And sometimes I'm like, no, I just need to be yeah. loved. Yeah. And, and that's what I appreciate about it. And talking about, you know, speaking generally, this is why like general, general authorities uh -huh, uh -huh. have the impossible job. I mean, they are in such a predicament. And whenever I hear maybe some individuals really like critique or turn their nose up at, at a certain talk, I think he is in a lose-lose here, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, something he's speaking maybe to a certain group or maybe he is speaking with you and you're not there yet to listen, but come back to it. Right, you know, right. you'll, you'll get there, but don't, don't dismiss it or don't right. categorize that guy as one that, eh, he he's a little off, off base in my, my opinion. Maybe there's more to learn there and, and you need to come back to it so later. So true. You know? there, there, one of my favorite places in the Book of Mormon to see that is in Alma chapter 42, where Alma, this is, you know, father to son or priesthood leader to repentant sinner. And for the last three chapters, it's been a tough conversation with Corianton, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he broke the law of chastity as a missionary, and his dad is the prophet, double whammy. And, right. and here you are talking. And chapter 39 is strong. You know, 39, right. dad lays down the a law. A lot of works and, talk, right? Right? <laughs> right, a lot of repentance and yeah. a lot of, you know, you need godly sorrow. And right. do you, understand, you have any idea how serious this sin is, son? Because 
he probably just was feeling like, oh, okay, whatever. I, I can repent. Dad keeps talking about grace. I'm, I'm sure I've got it. It's fine. Uh-huh. Right. And what's interesting is he lays down the law in 39 and then in 40 and 41 and in 42, he chooses three different doctrines that he really feels like his son is going to need to understand to take sin seriously and repentance seriously at the same time. You know, if President Packer's right, and he was, that true doctrine will change behavior more than behavior will. Well, you get three doctrinal chapters, not three behavioral ones. But at the very end of this conversation, father to son, I love what he does trying to help his son prove the contraries or into the middle area. I called it the Goldilocks zone, where it's not too much works or too much grace. It's not too much justice or too much mercy. Hmm. I'm right where I need to be, and I'll be able to move forward in this. And he puts it this way. End of this long conversation, says, now my son, I desire that you should let these things trouble you no more. Now, can you imagine hearing that from your bishop? at the end of a, a long conversation of confession and you're just feeling horrible or at the end of a, a membership council or just some conversation that's hard and just to say, I don't want this to trouble you anymore. Now, the danger of that is, do I overswing the pendulum? Like, well, hallelujah, I'm good. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm off scot-free. And so dad continues in the next phrase, only let your sins trouble you. So it's almost this, it's like bumper bowling. It's like, well, don't fall off on that side. Ooh, but don't fall off on the other side. And so there's this, don't let this trouble you. Well, let it trouble you a little, right? but just enough. And how do I know just enough? He says, let your sins trouble you with that trouble, which shall bring you down unto repentance. And I love that idea of there needs to be this, this sweet spot, this hinge in the balance, this Goldilocks zone where I'm troubled just enough to know that I need to repent, but not troubled so much that I don't think I can. And so in the next verse, when he talks about, you know, don't excuse yourself, that's too much grace or too much mercy. Don't excuse yourself in the least point because of your sins. Don't deny the justice of God. But then he says, let the justice of God and his mercy, so there's the balance, and his long suffering have full sway in your hearts. I mean, how do we strike balance? We stick our arms out, right? Mm-hmm. We want to reach to the extremes. I want all the justice that God expects of me and all the mercy that he offers. And I think if we can find that balance, and again, it's best done one-on-one, getting a sense of where someone is and knowing you need a little more reassurance. Yeah, that's powerful. I love it. Anything else around this this topic, evangelicals, tough questions, any other like interfaith tips or thoughts or perspectives that that you want to give? I would just suggest we do more of it, uh, you know, and not to make it some kind of a covert missionary operation, uh, (laughs) but rather a genuine openness and to realize, I'll put it this way, when I first started studying anti-religious rhetoric in graduate school, and so much of it began with anti-Mormonism, how are people attacking my faith? And what are they saying? And then I realized, oh, wait, this sounds a lot like the way they attacked early Methodism, just a hundred years earlier in Great Britain, and realized, oh, this is, sounds a lot like how Catholicism attacked Protestantism during the Reformation and vice versa. And I started well, like, wow, everybody has an enemy. And there's so much of conflict and contention through all of this. And I realized if you'll just zoom out, all the Protestants get together in the face of Catholicism. They fight each other when there's no Catholicism present, interdenominational strife but then bring a Jew or a Muslim into the, onto the scene, and now all, even Catholics and Protestants get along just great because we're uh-huh. all Christians. <laughs> well, and then bring someone 
who, you know, a skeptic, a, a non-believer, bring an atheist into the room. And now all people of faith unite, you know, and it's like, hey, Muslims and Jews and Christians all come together, right? Yeah. And I think in some ways to zoom out one last time and see that we're all children of God and that he loves us all and has made ample provision, Joseph Smith said, to bring us all home and to understand that God plays the long game and we can afford to be patient. That doesn't mean we have to lessen our zeal, but we can increase our patience and rejoice in the goodness that we find anywhere it might be and cheer on friends of other faiths because they're doing amazing things. They're doing good. We can have the holy envy you mentioned. We ought to. Yeah. And I'm always impressed by, uh, you know, I've interviewed various uh, public affairs directors or individuals. I think now they're communications council uh, is the name for it now. And I'm always inspired by the work they do, especially in areas where they're the religious minority. What would you say to the Utah public affairs? Because, you know, when I served in a state presidency, like we didn't even think twice about that calling or, you know, it sort of was assigned to a high councilman as in his list of responsibilities. What can we do better in Utah to to reach out or this interfaith work? It's funny. The more I was exposed, whenever I've been a minority, you realize that your vocabulary is sometimes unique to yourself. Like when we talk about the sacrament, that's Catholics don't call it that. They talk about the sacraments and there's a lot of them. And the Eucharist is only one. The word ward is an interesting word. And for a Latter-day Saint, when I would try to explain, you know, to friends, I would never talk about my ward. I'd always talk about my congregation because they don't know what a ward is. They don't know what a stake is. But what's interesting, originally ward was a political designation, not an ecclesiastical one. It was, this is the voting ward. It's like, this is the area. This is the neighborhood. And I think what's interesting, we talk about our wards and the only people that are included in our wards are church members. Mm-hmm. But if ward is a geographic designation, which it is, right. then that includes everybody. And I, I think so, sometimes it's a matter of talking less about our ward and talking more about our neighborhood and not having a ward Christmas party, but having a neighborhood Christmas party. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not just this is for church members. This is for anybody. And maybe we do it at the park instead of in the church cultural hall. Often I've seen that even interfaith can go wrong when it seems that one group is serving another group instead of two groups on equal footing, serving a common need. And so instead of thinking, oh, here in Utah, we should go and and serve the Catholic Church down the street, or we should go and, and do this for the evangelicals. Rather, we're on the same level. And what are some common goals that we have and some common things that we can do? Can we team up and do a service project at the Utah Food Bank or the you know at a food pantry? What kinds of things can we help? And all of a sudden, we're starting to have experiences together, or we can trade off and we'll, let's have an interfaith thing at your at your place this time, and then we'll do one at our our place you know yeah. later and. And just really open ourselves up to having good conversations without any kind of pressure that I'm supposed to convert them today. Yeah. And I think the tricky thing is, you know, speaking, not just Utah, but Idaho and Arizona and Mm -hmm. some parts and things that they're not just like other religions aren't just a religious minority, they're a religious super duper duper minority. Right. And I was even looking at, I'm currently uh, living temporarily in, uh, in Kaysville and I was looking at at the ward where we're planning a Halloween party and there's literally maybe three houses, yeah. you know, that are now members and that maybe they've been, you know, the ward mission has worked on those three houses mm-hmm. for so long that then when <laughs> yeah. the, 
when the public affairs individual knocks on their door and and they say, I told you I'm not interested. Like, no, 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 this is for the Halloween party. They don't believe you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, exactly. no, you're trying to get me in that building or you're trying to get me in this group because I know what your true intentions are, you know? And it's just, and I don't know. It, and it's, it's one of those things like, I'm not sure if there's too much we can do about it other than recognize it and work towards being better. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and again, the better neighbors we can be. I am so grateful for the neighbors we had in Tennessee where we were the super duper minority, uh-huh. Yeah, you know, and to have Southern Baptist family two doors down and a Lutheran family next door and, and we loved each other mm-hmm. and we'd get together in the cul-de-sac for uh, 4th of July hot dogs and, and just do things together. And when our kids got baptized, of course we invited the rest of our friends. Mm-hmm. And I remember one, he was basically a, an inactive evangelical hmm. who came to one of our kids' baptisms and was visibly moved by it. Hmm. And you could just see the spirit waking him up to the kinds of relationship he had with Jesus as a kid. And he decided to fully return to evangelicalism. Wow, that's great. And I remember thinking, am I supposed to feel that that was a failure? Like, <laughs> no, 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 you were so close. You're supposed to come to my church. And it was like, that person has reunited with Jesus that's exactly what needed to happen. Yeah. And again, God plays the long game. Yeah. And if there sure. was ever a church that could afford to be patient based on both our doctrine and our practice, it's the Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Because of temple work, because of work for, you know, work for the dead, because of what happens in the spirit world. It's I tell my students all the time, permanent bad news is against my religion. <laughs> I don't believe in it. Yeah. Just so again, not to take away from any zeal or a sense of urgency. But if we feel those things at the expense of patience and love and long suffering, then we're, we're out of balance. We're doing it wrong. Yeah. Awesome. Let's pivot a little bit towards a project you've been working on with uh, the Come Follow Me. Is it a program? What are we supposed to call it? It's just Come Follow Me. It's what we (laughs) do. Scripture study. Scripture study, right? You have a YouTube channel called Unshaken. Uh And uh, how did this, where'd this idea come from or why did you start it? Oh, well, yeah, uh, COVID forced me to. Can right. I, can I, can I, can so I blame many, that? Right? There's so many pet projects in this world because exactly, of COVID. Right? Exactly. But this is a good one. When, so I've been teaching Institute here for the last six years. And when COVID came and basically shut down the building, the church asked that we all move online somehow. And for most, that meant teaching Zoom classes uh, with our groups. And, and there's some great be- benefit in that. But I'd had students in the past from old seminary students or students back in Tennessee and just still wishing, like, ah, I wish we could still be all together and be in class, you know, and learning and studying together. And it, they'd kind of been pushing me in that direction anyway. And But I don't think I would have taken the step if COVID hadn't forced my hand. But jumped in and started filming lessons and posting them for my students and and just leaving it open to anybody else who wanted to be a part of things. And I've been amazed at how hungry disciples of Christ are all over the world to study. And especially when we haven't had the opportunity to do so together face-to-face in a Sunday school class, there's some amazing, just really good, high-quality opportunities online. And not just mine, but so many good channels out there. And for some are more devotional and some are more academic. And all I love that there are opportunities all over that the internet has provided where we can find a teacher that we can resonate with and hopefully not have them do all our, our study for us but perhaps to share some of their expertise or experience in a way that it jumpstarts our own study. And I think 
What's been most gratifying for me is hearing from people around the world, just my scripture study is changing. I'm looking more deeply into scripture. I'm wanting to, I'm not skimming or skipping over things just because I don't think they're important or because I'm not understanding them. But I mean, my hope is not just to catch and distribute fish, yeah. but to, to show <laughs> here's, here's how you cast a line right. uh, or here how's, here's how you throw out a net and here's some things you can find in the process. Yeah. And, you know, just this uh, shift with uh, Come Follow Me, and, and I think in the beginning we all sort of thought, like, this is great. I mean, and it is great. Like, And we sort of envision, like, we're going to come together as a family. We're going to have these in-depth conversations, and oh, I'm going to prepare, and we'll, we'll take turns to prepare. Who's got the, you know, the, who's going to bring the main dialogue to the conversation, and, and it'll be great. And then as time went on, then, you know, life makes it more difficult. Right. Suddenly another week comes around, and oh, look, there's Jared, and oh, look, there's this other one, and this other one, right? And there's these breadth of, of options on online on YouTube of different styles and mm-hmm. things to watch. But sometimes I feel like, am I cheating by watching Jared? You know, because <laughs> like you said, you don't want to you don't want to catch the fish for them. But man, you just know so much more, and and uh, I gain so much more just by you telling me how it is. And so I guess it goes back to balance. Like, how do we strike the balance of you know relying on resources like yours, but still. And at the end of the day, it comes down to why do we study the scriptures? That may seem like a, such an elementary primary question, but at the same time, I think there's, it's caused me to pause and, because am I trying to become a scholar yeah, like Jared, yeah. you know, or am I just trying to connect with God or, and maybe it changes, but what, what are your no, thoughts on that? That's such a great question, uh, especially for the times that we're living in, because that is a common, a common occurrence, especially when you find someone that seems to speak your language mm-hmm. and teaches in a way that you, that you learn. I love what you said about well, what's the real purpose of scripture here? Is yeah. it to become a, a scholar, a scriptorian? And in John 5, when Jesus says to the people of his day, you search the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. Yeah. And there's this sense, I'm mean, talking about the source, capital S, putting the <laughs> right. scriptures in their, in their proper perspective, right. where it's like, wait, you... Oh, I get it. No wonder you scribes and Pharisees are such scriptorians because you think that's where salvation comes from. Yeah. Huh. They're an arrow and I'm the destination and you're missing the destination because you're fixated on the signpost. This is a problem. Uh-huh. And I think if we perceive the scriptures to be the end rather than the means to a greater end, then if this is a purely intellectual exercise and I'm supposed to learn these things and understand as if there were some kind of multiple choice test on judgment day about scriptural trivia, that's not the case. They are they which testify of Christ. And so if there is an insight, if there's a, an understanding, an interpretation of scripture that helps me come to know the Savior better, now that's scripture study. And it's not just knowing the Savior better. Many there shall be that say, there's going to be Lord, Lord, <laughs> and shall not enter in the kingdom of heaven, right? It's, are you doing these works? And then they say, well, yeah, we are. We, we've prophesied in your name and we've said these things and we've done all these mighty works. And then he says, well, but you never knew me. So it's not just about knowing the scriptures. It's about doing these things. But it's not just about doing these things. It's about coming to know the Savior through the process. And that cannot happen just because somebody else is spoon feeding you information. Again, I think, I, I hope I can speak collectively for all teachers that our hope is to just give you enough material that you and the Lord have something to work with together. And I think sometimes we, well, I'll put it this way. I remember when I first got to Tennessee and I felt the weight of the world on my shoulders of, I've got to help every 14 to 30 year old 
in Tennessee make it home to God because uh, I'm running the seminary and <laughs> right. program here, right? And I remember the church does a, a great job of trying to train us, but there's so much that has to happen on the ground. You don't even know what questions to ask. And I remember that first year particularly constantly saying to my wife that expectation without education is frustration. Mm-hmm. And because I had this huge expectation on myself, but didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. Didn't feel like I had the education to meet it. And as a result, frustration is what came. And I think in the church, everybody knows that scripture study is an expectation. We should be doing this, right? And Come Follow Me has emphasized that and has organized that in beautiful ways. But if all we have is the expectation of scripture study, and we do not have the education of how do I make them work? What am I supposed to do with them? How do I see what you've seen there? Then what we've left them with is frustration. And the continued expectation and the continued exhortation that you should be studying, it's so frustrating. It's like, no. And my biggest fear, I think, is to have somebody come back with their scriptures and like, I didn't keep my receipt. I'm sorry. But can you take this back? Because my set seems to be defective. It doesn't do what yours do. And and again, and I'm looking I, at your I, scriptures. Mine did not come with all those marks. <laughs> I just want you to know. <laughs> but there is this, I don't know, if we can help, the rubber's going to hit the road one-on-one, like in everything, like we yeah. talked about with questions. It's going to happen in a bishop's office. It's going to happen in a parent-child conversation. It's going to happen friend to friend. And in education, they keep talking about this flipped classroom model. And I think in some ways, COVID has forced that upon public education and universities and high schools and so on where it's so much instruction can take place at home. Now, that used to all take place at school. And then the application and the experimentation, the homework was supposed to be done at home. And the flipped classroom model is turn it all over on its head. And all that lecturing that you used to get from the professor on campus, get it at home online. But still come to school and come together and we'll do the lab. It's like lecture lab. You can do lecture at home now, but lab work Let's come together. In fact, don't do homework at home. Just learn it at home. Come do homework at school Hmm. where the professor's here, but now that you're actually working on it and going, yeah, I thought I understood. (laughs) I don't. Mm -hmm. Can you help clarify this for me? Oh, yeah, sure. Or all these people that have learned different things from different teachers online. Can you imagine a Sunday school where everybody's learned from their favorite teachers around the world, whatever it might be, but then to actually discuss what it looks like within your neighborhood? you know, in a family home evening, what it looks like in your own home of now we understand the scriptures better than we did, but how are we going to implement those principles in our lives? That's completely unique to the individual. And to have those kinds of just rubber hitting road conversations at home or at church, that would be incredible to me with, with a bunch of people who have finally understood the scriptures, which lends itself now to really deep conversations about applying it to our lives. Because that's what scripture is, yeah. rather than just some kind of esoteric intellectual exercise that I'm supposed to become, right. you know, put my glasses on and now I'm, I'm thinking in Hebrew. No, it's I'm coming to know Christ and I'm following his example in ways that I never did before because I was talking with somebody about some insight that the scriptures have opened up to me. And if instead of the scriptures being a sealed book that I keep beating my head against, trying to unlock things I don't get. If someone else just showed me a key, it's like Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts where he asks, what you reading? Oh, Isaiah, do you get it? It's a great question to ask whenever somebody's reading Isaiah, right? (laughs) 
and he says, how can I unless some, some man should teach me? I said, oh, okay. Well, let me teach you then. Let me, and in fact, the way Philip does it, he starts on the very page where this Ethiopian eunuch is and teaches him Jesus. And I think if we can do that and help people find Jesus in the scriptures, then what does Philip immediately do once the Ethiopian gets it? He disappears. He's out. It's like, okay, now you get it. Go live it. Because mm-hmm. that's the real scripture study. I love that. I mean, just the concept of if there's somebody out there who's just struggling with figuring this out or your scriptures are broken, you yeah, feel like, yeah. right? And that you just sometimes need that person to give you that key or to, or to instruct you a little bit. And then it may, you can catch the momentum and, and it opens up for you in that, in that moment. Right? Yeah. I heard a story years ago of a bunch of ministers together discussing the various merits of different translations of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And one said, oh, I love the King James because of the majesty of the language. And another said, oh, I love the New International Version because it's so clear and, and put into modern terms. And another pastor said, I've always preferred the translation of my mother. And the <laughs> other said, well, your mom translated the Bible? And thinking, and, and what were they picturing? Her, you know, yeah. uh, looking over ancient texts and manuscripts uh-huh. and, and with Hebrew lexicons and, you know, Greek uh, word studies. And this minister said, yeah, my mom translated the Bible into every act of her life. And it was the most convincing translation I've ever read. And to me, it's, I hope I can translate, quote unquote, translate scripture into a comprehensible form so that then they can do the real act of translation into their lives. Yeah. And there's such great permission in that because I think of a traditional, you know, Sunday school class now. What is a traditional? Who knows what a traditional Sunday school class (laughs) means anymore? But you know, where maybe a question's asked or a scripture's read, and then they may ask a question, what do you think about that scripture? And there's so many people who feel like, I don't really feel authorized to interpret that scripture. So I'm just going to stay quiet and let Mr. Hebrew in mm-hmm. the back answer the, the question, because he obviously has a better grasp on the scriptures. But just to give oneself permission that, no, you actually have the right to translate, to interpret the scripture for you because God will teach you through right, the scripture, right? right. Yeah, it's funny. In divinity school, they, there's all this jargon you have to memorize. And I always joked with new students that were feeling overwhelmed, and I always laughing, hey, don't worry about it. You'll get there. My first week, I couldn't tell my hermeneutic from my homiletic. Mm-hmm. And they're like, uh, I don't know either of those words. I'm like, it's okay, neither did I. But, uh, <laughs> but hermeneutic is how we interpret scripture, and exegesis is what did the scripture actually mean? And there's this interesting kind of dichotomy between exegesis on the one hand and hermeneutic on the other. And one is answers the question, what does the scripture mean? And the other answers the question, what does the scriptures mean to me? Mm-hmm. Kind of to your point. And the beauty of that second question, if somebody else can maybe help me understand what the scriptures mean, now I can really apply this to this. And now this is what that means to me. Yeah. There's actually a really amazing uh, phrase that Joseph Smith uses at the end of Joseph Smith history. After he and Oliver Cowdery have been baptized and the Spirit comes upon them and they go back to their scriptures. And I love this idea of the scriptures aren't just to help invite the Spirit. The Spirit is there to help us understand the scripture. And when they feel the Spirit, it says, this is at the end of Joseph Smith history, verse 74, our minds being now enlightened, we began to have the scriptures laid open to our understandings and the true meaning and intention of their more mysterious passages revealed unto us in a manner which we never could attain to previously, nor ever before had thought of. 
And I love in the middle where he says, we, we started seeing their true meaning and intention. Hmm. And to me, there's a difference between the meaning of Scripture and the intention of Scripture. I mean, in technical terms, I think meaning is exegesis, but intention is hermeneutic. In other words, maybe you need somebody, you know, there's resources and there's commentaries and there's teachers and so on that can help you understand the meaning of Scripture. But then you've got to ask the second question. Well, what's the intention then? Now that I know what the prophet meant by that, what did he intend by that? In other words, what did he intend me to do Hmm. now that I have that understanding? And talk about rich material for conversations in a class or in a home of now that we get this, what's the intention behind it? Yeah. And there's this power, in, especially in this come follow me age, that, yeah, I mean, you, you have credentials and things that are, that are well-earned and awesome and helpful, but uh, that doesn't mean someone without those PhDs and things can't interpret and share their perspective totally, in a way totally. that, that will still give to me, right? And- for example, I'm I'm in the midst of writing this this manuscript. I'm fifty six thousand words in this oh, manuscript, nice. almost done, right? Yeah. And I make some pretty bold claims in this manuscript. I mean, you've read my newsletter. I make some bold claims. Yeah. Sometimes I change Good my stuff. mind, but it gets you thinking, <laughs> okay? And there's this part of me that you know, probably the adversary was spring saying, if you put that out there, you're going to be proved wrong with scripture, or somebody's going to say, well, if you look at the uh, deep Hebrew uh, translation yeah. of yeah. that, means that this and equals that, I'm like. Right. Well, I will never be that scholar. And not that that gives me, not that I shouldn't be, or I'm just, it's just not part of my DNA as far as how I see God created me. Right. But I can still put words together and feeling and perspective and understanding of scripture and present it to the world and say, I'm not claiming to be a prophet, but this is my perspective on the gospel. And if it helps you move closer to Christ, well, that's what my intention yeah, is, right? Yeah. Even if maybe some far off scholar can prove that, oh, on page 46, you got something wrong here, right? And I think just giving people permission to do that and also permission to, mm-hmm. you know, I think of the many writers, evangelical writers that I love to read, yeah. like, oh, yeah. uh, I don't know, if you're John Eldridge. Like, I just love his books and I'll read it. And there's some chapters I'm sort of like swimming past, like, okay, no, that's not, <laughs> no, that's yeah. not how I see it. But, but then there'll be a full chapter that just touches my heart and brings me closer to Christ. And then I return to my scriptures and I see them with a new lens, right? Totally, totally. And, uh, and so there's a power not only giving you permission to, to interpret, but looking to others who you know that aren't in the restored gospel of the Church of Jesus Christ of yeah. Latter Saints. But how do they see it and what can we learn from that? And that holy envy that we talked yeah. about earlier is, is powerful in our progress towards Christ, right? Well, I love in section 91 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph's doing the JST. He gets to the Apocrypha, which is in some. Christian Bibles, but not in others. And so he's wondering, okay, I'm, I'm, <laughs> am I supposed to translate this too? Uh-huh. And the answer the Lord gives is, is profound because it relates to so many issues beyond the Apocrypha. I mean, I, I don't know how often we think about the Apocrypha and if we should be <laughs> right. reading it, right? But when the Lord says, there's some good stuff there, there is some truth in the Apocrypha. There's also some interpolations of men. Mm-hmm. So some stuff that, yeah, no, it's not gospel truth. Now, if you have the Spirit with you, you'll be able to tell the difference between the two, and you'll be able to find benefit in the truths that you find that are there. Now, is it on the same level as the rest of canonized Scripture? No. So don't take the time to translate it, but realize that it's a good source. To me, that describes everything out there. The evangelical books that you were mentioning, or a Broadway play, or a movie that I saw, or some other book that I read, and any kind of media that comes to you, 
look at it through the lens of Section 91, and you'll see there's some true principles here, mm-hmm. and there's some not-so-true principles. Yeah. And with the Spirit, I can tell the difference, and I can benefit from what's there. Is it on the same level as Scripture? No. Am I going to study it every day like I do the rest of my script? No. But to bring it in and let it be a part of things, I think, is, is beautiful. I'd also add, if you watch, at least as I read Joseph Smith's life, he got more and more flexible with Scripture the older he got. Mm-hmm. Early on, I mean, he get, almost got in a fight with Oliver Cowdery about the, the, the phrasing of a verse in section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It was like, how dare you say that? that no, no, this is exactly how it's supposed to be written. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then by the end, though, I mean, what is it, section 128, when he quotes Malachi, and he's had several different versions of Malachi over the years, the one in the King James, the one in, you know, that Moroni quotes is different. And he quotes the old King James version instead of the new... Moroni, DNC 2 version, and he says, you know, I, yeah, I could give a, a different, a plainer translation of this verse, but this one's good enough. And it's like, wait, what? This one's good enough for your, pr- I thought this was, you know, this is scripture. It has to be dictated exactly, you know, letter by letter. And in a sermon he gives in Nauvoo, he's, he's preaching a sermon about the epistles of Peter. And he says, you know, the words in scripture are only hints of what existed in the prophet's mind. And rather than quote Peter on all these principles, I'm going to teach the truth that God has given to me. It's like Peter would be nodding in the background going, amen. Yeah, that's that's not exactly how I said it, but yeah, I'm feeling the same thing. You're conveying the hints that God placed in my mind and heart based on the hints that he's placed in yours. Now, I'm not saying that we're revealing scripture. We're not on a level of prophets. I, I understand that. But like you're describing of what does this scripture mean to me? And do I have to become you know, a Hebrew grammarian? And do I? No, it's you have the Holy Ghost to help you tap into the ultimate source. And to see the hints of what God placed in the prophets' minds and, and to study them and to ponder them and to have insight come to you and how it applies in your situation, that's where scripture study becomes powerful because it's where it becomes personal. Yeah. Ah, that's so helpful and, and just awesome. Love it. So what would you say, if, <laughs> I mean, in a world of many YouTube come follow me options, what, do people, what should people expect by checking out Unshaken? Well, they're long. <laughs> Brace yourself. Because um, people say, I mean, you go verse by verse. You're not like. Yeah, I typically, and I don't know if I'll be able to keep that up forever. It, it takes, it's super time consuming. You just have to do it for four years, yeah. then you can repeat. So you're fine. <laughs> right. By then, hopefully we have the sealed portion. I'd right. have a fifth, Maybe. A fifth year of yeah, rotation. That would be right? great. But to me, there's just power in spending time in the text and thinking and pondering and trying to make sense of why did he say this? And what does this one have to mean? You know, what does this one mean to me? Again, there's so many good channels out there, and sometimes the best channel is to turn them all off and open up the channel between you and Heavenly mm-hmm. Father and just to read. That's what I try to do, and hopefully students that have been in my classes or people that are tuning in online get a chance just to, to fall in love with the Scriptures again and see, wow, every verse is a gold mine. That there, there's a verse when Jesus is expounding Scripture in Third Nephi, and it says he expounded all the Scriptures unto them, both great and small. And to me, there are very rarely is there a verse that's too small for some kind of insight. And yeah. they didn't all come to me the first time I read my scriptures. This, this is a result of, I mean, what you're seeing in my set of scriptures is 20 years worth of study and just almost sedimentary layers, you know, yeah. and it, eventually it becomes a rock, but it's just a grain of sand here and a thought there. And, and I think showing God how much we treasure the things that he, that he gives us. And I just want to write that in the margin or I want to underline it in my scriptures and I want to put that in a study guide or, or a study journal and then let the Spirit start to teach you. I'm always moved by the experience of Moses with the burning bush. And I think, why do we call it the burning bush? 
God spoke to him out of it. I mean, this is the speaking bush. I yeah. mean, that, that's the real deal. <laughs> I've right? seen a burning right? bush. I've not seen a talking bush. Yeah. Right? But there's what happens there is when Moses sees the burning bush, he stops what he's doing. In the Exodus account, it says, he turned aside to see. And that must be significant because the next verse says, and when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, that's when he spoke to him out mm. of the bush. And so it's almost like the Lord sends us this, this burning feeling, this burning in the bosom, this spiritual experience to catch our attention. But that wasn't the sum total of the experience. That was the, like the divine clearing of the throat. Like, mm, I'm mm, trying to get, a, I, I want, I've got a message for you, son. I, I want to talk to you, daughter. Yeah. And, and yet we take that as like, I heard God clear his throat. Isn't that amazing? It's like, and yet you <laughs> left? What, what, what did he say? It's like, what do you mean? Right, yeah. you know, and, and so I picture Moses running back to Jethro and saying, I saw this bush on fire up on the mountain. It's incredible. And Jethro going, well, what, what did it say to you? What are you talking about? What did it say? Bushes don't talk. Well, they don't burn and not get consumed either. Yeah. There's a message here. And I think my hope is as people immerse themselves in scripture, whether it's with the help of an outside teacher or just exposing themselves to it themselves, I hope they have burning bush experiences where something will jump off the page at them, that they'll feel something in a verse. And instead of just rushing on to the next one, because I've got to get to the end of this chapter. <laughs> we have it's, seven days right, right, Jared, exactly, to get exactly. through this section. <laughs> right? To me, it's like, no, turn aside to see. If, some, if you felt something in a verse, stop and, and ponder that and start thinking about it. And how would I explain this? And why is this meaningful? And that's when the real messages will come. And it goes far beyond anything I could ever say on a YouTube video. It will be personal insight and application. And, and again, you'll fall in love with the Word of God. Yeah. And you sort of answered that my next question of, because it can feel like Come follow me sort of homework at times. Like you have seven days, get through these chapters and, and you better hurry because we're moving on to these other four <laughs> chapters, right? And so it can, there can be this like urging of like, no, I can't really stop here, but to really force yourself to, and, and really, if you get behind a few weeks, the fact that you're in the word, I mean, you're, you're wrestling with it, you're pondering over it is great, but would you have any advice to people who feel like, well, when, when do I move on? Like when, I mean, cause you could spend a whole year in one chapter, right? Yeah. Like any advice on when, when you know you can move on or a great question. There is it having a schedule is a two-edged sword. Uh -huh. the, on the the positive side, it keeps us all organized and on the same page, so we have something common to discuss yeah, in right. church on Sunday, <laughs> right? And it moves us towards the finish line. There have been times. I mean, President Hinckley did this in what 2005, I think, and just said we're all going to read the Book of Mormon by the end of the oh, year. Oh yeah, that was great. Remember, and I and President Irene even said in a conference talk in October. This is where I am in my scripture study. I started when President Hinckley said we should, and almost a sense of if you're behind, you may have procrastinated. Uh -huh. uh, we gotta, you gotta make this now. If you've never read the scriptures, having a, a deadline and a goal and a and a study program to get you there is such a blessing. But I think sometimes we can feel chained, like oh, I didn't, I didn't read everything, and I and I'm not keeping up. I've got a friend in Tennessee, wonderful brother that joined the church when I was there, and and just a, a sweet, sweet soul, and loves the gospel and wants to just immerse himself in it. And he, he uh, texted me the other day and just said, I'm so far behind on your videos. I'm so sorry. And I just reassured, <laughs> it's like, you're not behind on anything. You're, right. you're having experiences with God. And that's what the scriptures are for. And I mean, years ago, I had a seminary student say, oh, how did he put it? It was, we had this conversation of what if I don't finish the book during seminary? Uh -huh. I said, you know, if you're spending time in the text every day, even if you're still in Genesis at the end of the Old Testament year, man, you're going to love Genesis. Right. And I hope you love it enough to keep reading eventually. Keep going. There's great stuff in Exodus and beyond, right? Yeah. 
Or I had another student in a New Testament year come to me halfway through the semester. I finished the New Testament. What do you want me to do now? And I, I made a scene in the middle of class. I'm like, whoa, wait, wait a second. You what? You finished the New Testament? Everybody, <laughs> you need to see this. This She finished it. And she's starting to feel uncomfortable. All eyes are on her. And she's like, uh, it's not a big deal. It's only like, like 400 pages. I mean, it's not that. I'm like, and, well, I know, but I've been reading the New Testament for 30 years and I've never finished. And she's like, wait, so I just start over? I'm like, yeah, just start over. Uh, and, and so there's, yeah. it, to me, it's the experience that we're after, yeah. not just the checked box. I got through it again. And I've sometimes joked about what I call the Benson backlash. I grew up, I was a teenager with President Benson. Uh -huh. He signed my mission call. He was my prophet. And I love the Book of Mormon because of what President Benson encouraged me to do with it. But I think sometimes, and this was not President Benson's intent, but this, what I, this quote unquote Benson backlash is, we feel guilty for reading other scripture besides the Book of Mormon. And if we're not in it every day, then it's like, oh, I'm doing something wrong. And, and it's almost like we took that verse that says a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible, we don't need another Bible. And now <laughs> we, we say, we I've it. got a Book of Mormon, a Book of Mormon, I don't need another Book of Mormon, right? Why should I be read other scripture? Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 just if you're having the experiences that scripture is meant to accomplish, who cares if Nephi gets the credit or if Peter does or if Jonah does or if Emma Smith does and read, study learn, experience, wherever it happens to be. And if you spent all week pondering a verse from this week's section, man, you're going to have something to share in gospel doctrine. Right. It's like, this verse blew me away. I couldn't stop. I didn't have time for the rest. When a student comes to me and says, I'm sorry, I, if it looked like I tuned you out halfway through your lesson, it's because what we talked about in that moment just spurred so much thought that I had to tune you out to just write down some thoughts and you know, gather my ideas. And I'm like, don't apologize for that. Apologize <laughs> if that didn't happen. If you, if you turned to the Holy Ghost and said, oh, actually, can you wait? I got to listen to Brother Halverson drone on for the next <laughs> half an hour. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah. Tune me out and tune him in. And that's the case in, in scripture study. Awesome. Man, we have covered a lot, but I knew I could either come back three times or we could just tackle <laughs> it all here. So before we wrap up, like any thought or principle or line item that we didn't cover that you hope we would that they oh, want to make sure we a, get It's or, been a fun conversation. It's been yeah. easy to forget that there are microphones in front of us. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and you're a great conversation partner, Kurt. <laughs> cool. Well, and and to be able to, I don't know, just share with your, with your listeners what a blessing it is that we have the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have, it's worth having conversations with people who are struggling with their testimony. It's worth having conversations with those of other faiths, not just to learn, but to teach and to rejoice in what we have in common and what we don't. There is... I mean, the, the more time I spend in scripture, the more I love them, the more time, the deeper I get into the history of the church, the more amazed and impressed I am by it, including even its messiness. To see the divinity poking out between the humanity is breathtaking. We don't have to be shy or feel intimidated by our lack of understanding. It's the fullness. We're not, it's going to take forever to plumb the depths and to climb the, to scale the heights and Personally, that's exhilarating to me. I don't want to run out of things. What my biggest fear going into my mission was wondering, will this ever get old? Because I loved football. I played it and drank it and slept it and eat it, ate, ate it and drank mm -hmm. it. And, but by the end of the season, I was ready to move on for track season. You know, mm -hmm. I want to do something else. And I honestly worried, will my mission get old? Will I kind of max out on the gospel and feel like, eh, it was fun, but what, what's next? And I came home from my mission 25 years ago, and I haven't stopped teaching the gospel or studying it since. 
and it never gets old and it never, it never maxes out. And so for those who may be struggling in their faith, for those leaders who are wringing their hands over the doubts and concerns that, that their loved ones are expressing, I'll say it again, permanent bad news is against my religion. And the gospel never exhausts itself. It's a beautiful thing, and I am grateful for it. I'm, I'm grateful for the influence that it's had in my life, and I love seeing the light bulb come on in my students. It's so exhilarating. I know that God cares about his children, every one of them, and that he has a plan whereby we can all come home. And he plays the long game, and I'm, I don't know, I guess I have enough patience and faith just to enjoy watching it all unfold. That concludes my interview with Jared Halverson. Wow, a lot to consider, a lot to go through. This would probably be an episode that you may want to uh, move the dial all the way back to the beginning and go through one more time because there's a lot to pick up, a lot to consider. I would encourage you to check out Brother Halverson's YouTube channel, or he has a podcast feed as well. Just search for Unshaken Brother Halverson, and you should uh, you should find it. And a lot of content each week with each Come Follow Me you know, uh, chapter, he's doing multiple videos of diving in really verse by verse many times where he's breaking down, giving you new perspectives of Come Follow Me. There's a lot of Come Follow Me channels out there and the more the merrier as far as I'm concerned because each offers like a new perspective or a different approach to Come Follow Me and uh, Jared may be along the better along the lines that you're looking for when it comes to Come Follow Me. So check him out. And I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.